All right. <clears throat> Mon, you hear me? Test one. There we go. Everybody hear me okay now? All right. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Old Testament again, so turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have trouble finding 1 Kings, it is uh, right before 2 Kings. We're continuing in this series looking on, looking at shame. We're going to see something so good in here that the Lord has for us this morning. 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 1. So let's all stand together if you're able and receive the word of the Lord. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask right now, God, that you would open our ears to hear exactly what you have to say to us. God, I pray that you would just use my mouth as a tool for you. God, I pray that you're by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you would work in our hearts, that you would just do a a surgery there, God, to to heal wounds, to release bondage, God, to set people free, Lord, and even save somebody that may be apart from you right now, separated you because of their sin. Lord, I pray today is a day that they cry out and find salvation and healing in you. Lord, let your will be done in this place. Jesus, be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. Deion Sanders is one of the greatest athletes of all time. In high school in Florida, he made first team all state in three different sports, football, baseball, and basketball. At the University of Florida, he was a two-time All-American in football and He was a star on his baseball team that was ranked fifth in the nation, and he led his track team to a conference championship. Of course, his multi-sport talents continued after college, where he played both football and baseball professionally. He is the only player in history to hit a home run in the major leagues and score a touchdown in the NFL in the same week. He's also the only person in history to play in both a World Series and a Super Bowl. 
And out of all the successes and awards that he achieved, that Super Bowl championship was his greatest goal. And he finally achieved that in 1994 with the San Francisco 49ers. And we all know that he did it again the very next year, but this time with the Cowboys. But in that first victory, that Super Bowl, as the final minutes ticked down and their victory was sure, Dion discovered something that absolutely horrified him. It was that whatever itch that he had been trying to scratch, whatever emptiness he was trying to feel or fill or rabbit that he was trying to catch, it was still there. And so while everyone else was celebrating on the field, Dion was the first one back to the locker rooms and the first one back to the hotel. And as the celebrations and parties over the victory continued all through the night, Dion stayed in his hotel room alone and utterly depressed. And for the weeks and months after that, they found him in a pit of despair because he realized that after attaining all of his greatest goals and achievements, that shame still haunted him. And so exhausting all efforts of relieving it, he figured the only solution now was to end his life. Deion Sanders was experiencing what many shame-based people do, which is the agony of victory. Now, we often assume that the solution to shame's taunt is a great victory or success. Achieve a big victory and it will silence the shaming voice that has haunted you for so long. But the reality is, and this is the first point for following along in the notes, that even our best moments are tainted with the taunts of shame. Bring home all A's and just one B on the report card and someone will ask why you made the B. Preach a sermon that touches hundreds and receive just one negative comment. Which do you think a preacher is going to remember the most? The negative one. Win your 10th professional golf tournament and be hounded with the question, why can't you win a major? Buy the house of your dreams and be obsessed over whether or not the yard is manicured good enough. Win a beauty pageant. And be consumed by the one tiny blemish on your forehead. Shame is no respecter of persons and it does not care how successful you are. Not only does it lie with you in the gutter after a big defeat and tell you, look at you, you're such a failure. It also will escort you down victory lane and say, sure you won, but so what? Still wasn't good enough. You know, there is a unique vulnerability and weakness that often comes after a great achievement or success. I, like most preachers I've talked to, tend to feel our lowest on a Monday after a great Sunday service. Israel's cowardice came on the heels of the miraculous Passover provision. And the parting of the Red Sea. David's rooftop lust of Bathsheba came after he had built up the greatest kingdom in Israel's history. And won the admiration and praise of all the people. Last week we saw how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. After receiving the great affirmation of the Father. And then there was Elijah. 
in a land saturated with many different religions to many different false gods, Elijah's name literally meant the Lord is my God. He's one of the greatest heroes in Israel's history who has such a prophetic anointing that just by the words of his mouth, there is drought and there is rain. There are many great miraculous things that Elijah did, but out of all of those great things, his best victory had to be the one that came on Mount Carmel. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that story. Where Elijah issues a challenge to King Ahab, gather all the people together and 450 prophets of the false god Baal. Let them build an altar and I'll build an altar and we'll put a bull on it and have them pray to their God for him to come and consume the offering on the altar. And I'll pray to mine and we'll see which one shows up and everybody will know which one is the true God. Well, the prophets of Baal come first, and they pray and pray, and nothing happens. All day long, this is going on. And Elijah begins to mock them and say, well, maybe your God's on a journey. Or maybe he's just asleep, and you need to wake him up. And so they start wailing loudly. It says they went, in, went into this rage and, and began shouting and and jumping about and and taking knives and cutting themselves to where they were bleeding profusely just in order to compel their God to move on their behalf, but still nothing happened. And then finally it was Elijah's turn. And he digs a moat, a ditch, all the way around the altar. He puts the bull on top of it and he tells people to get these big containers of water and pour it all over the wood. And now everybody's thinking, well, there's no way anybody's going to be able to light wet wood. And he says, okay, we'll go get some more water. And he pours more on it. And he says, that's still not enough. He did it a third time and even a fourth time. So much water, the wood was so saturated that it spilled over and completely filled in the trench that he had dug all around the altar. There's no way anybody's going to be able to light that fire. And then he prays. And he doesn't make some big show of it. He simply looks up to heaven and says, Let it be known that you are the God in Israel. And then immediately, fire from heaven just came down so strong and so intense that it didn't just burn up the sacrifice and burn up the wood. It completely incinerated the stones that the altar was made out of and absolutely dried up and lapped up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw that, they fell on their faces and declared, the Lord, he is God. But just to illustrate, put a kind of an exclamation mark on what a complete and total victory it was, Elijah slaughtered all 450 of those wicked prophets. What victory could be greater than that? I mean, it's hard to imagine a more decisive and triumphant victory than Elijah's at Mount Carmel. So how in the world do you explain what happened next? I mean, after a display like that, you would think that surely King Ahab would repent and rise up and call the prophet blessed. 
But instead of repenting, the king sleeks off and whines to his woman. Showing himself to be more mouse than man, verse 1 says, He told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. And she takes up an offense and threatens to kill Elijah. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at this whole issue of shame. We've learned how to identify it and looked at the remedy for it. Trusting that Jesus took your shame on the cross and believing in the Father's affirmation and who you are in Christ. And I've been so excited at the number of people that have told me just how God has been using these messages to set them free from from strongholds that have been binding them up for so long and, and healing them of wounds that have been on their heart. And I just love the way that God is doing this kind of heart surgery among us right now. But there's something that you've got to know lest you fall back into that trap of lies all over again. And it's the next point. There will never be a victory so great that it will silence the taunts of shame. Nothing will exempt you from the attacks of the enemy. There will always be a Jezebel. She may be quiet for a while. She may be hiding in the shadows, but you can count on it. She's there. And as long as Satan and his minions are permitted to roam the earth, there will always be a voice of shame that follows you, even up to the highest pinnacles of your greatest achievements. Now notice the audacity of this Jezebel. I mean, this is Elijah she is threatening. You don't mess with a man who can pray for drought to cover the whole land and call fire to come down from heaven. I mean, it would be like an ant threatening an elephant, wouldn't it? I mean, one pagan woman threatening a man of God who utterly humiliated and defeated 450 of Baal's absolute best. And yet, what do we read? Verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. What in the world has suddenly gotten into Elijah? I mean, we want to shout, what's wrong with you, man? You've raised the dead. You have felt the heat of fire from heaven on your face. Chill out, man of God. How can you be afraid of this woman? But Elijah has no energy to face another opponent. And in the agony of victory, he runs into a shame-filled depression. And he does what utterly depressed people do. He contemplates death. At the end of verse 4, he says, it is enough. I mean, he is crying, Caffro, I'm done. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. The man who had been living according to the word of God was now living to the word according to Jezebel. Elijah makes a tragic mistake. Instead of going to God with his fear and releasing his anxiety to him and finding strength and courage in the Lord, he tries to bear all this himself in isolation. Imagine the torment that he must have been going through out there. Just hearing that voice. You gave it your best, Elijah, but it wasn't enough. If you tried that hard and failed, you might as well give up. You're no better than everybody else that has gone before you. You're just like all the others, a complete 
failure. For those of you who are still finding yourself chasing that rabbit, trying to relieve the pain that shame has inflicted on your soul, I want you to hear this. There is no accomplishment that will be great enough to relieve the pressures of life. Never while you live on this earth will there ever be a day where you can shed your spiritual armor and declare the war to be over. No matter what level of spiritual maturity that you attain, the enemy of your soul will fight and contend and taunt you until your very last breath. Some of you are thinking, well, great. Where's the good news in that? Well, that news itself may not be very good, but it is good to know it. Because once you realize and accept the fact that the battle will never be over this side of heaven, once you realize that you will always be in process and never achieve perfection in this world, then you'll be ready for the Jezebels. And you won't be surprised when shame taunts you again from unexpected places. I mean, folks, let's face it. You will never, ever prove yourself to everyone. It's not going to happen. You will never please the masses. You will never make everyone happy. You will always be substandard in someone's eyes. There will always be somebody there to critique and criticize and demean you. So don't let it throw you, don't let it steal your joy, or rob you of peace. One of the greatest moments in my life as a pastor came the day that I finally accepted the fact that I was not going to please everyone. Because once I accepted that, I quit trying to do it, which was absolutely killing me. And after that, it just allowed me to concentrate on speaking the things that I felt like the Lord wanted me to say, regardless of how everyone else was going to receive it or respond to it. So I can tell you this, when you try to please everyone, it'll automatically make you compromise and water things down. There was a time where I used to kind of measure success by how many people said that they liked what I said, liked a sermon, and so whenever I'd get a criticism of it, shame would immediately get on me, and I'd think, oh, you're such a failure. Apparently, it wasn't good enough. But now I measure success more by how faithful I am to the truth. And when I finally realized that truth will always be attacked, then I quit allowing myself to be so affected by those who attack it. Now, coming to that realization, it has had its costs. I mean, when you are dedicated to remaining faithful to truth, there's some who aren't going to like that, and we've lost some church members over it. But I'll tell you right now, I'd rather have a church of five people who are hungry for truth 
than a church of 500 that just want to be pleased and happy and have their ears tickled. With Elijah, God would eventually deal with Jezebel the way that he dealt with the prophets of Baal. God will eventually silence the voices of shame that taunt you. He will eventually permanently silence the voice of Satan forever. But today, God's answer for your shame is not in your personal success or in his pledge to remove your thorn. His answer to it is the next point. God's pledge to you is to be with you in your pain, to be the bearer of your shame, and to nourish you for the journey ahead. One of the things that we've been learning about shame is that it moves us away from the Father and it isolates us, which is exactly what happened here to Elijah. But how does God respond to Elijah's cowardice and foolishness? How does he respond to that? I've shared with you, some of you may remember the story I related about something that happened with my son many years ago when he was younger and we lived different place than we do now out in the country and and Braden is one of those kids that I mean ever since he left the womb he despised having shoes on his feet I mean everywhere he went he wanted to be barefooted no matter how cold it was outside no matter how many acorns there were on the ground no matter how many sticker burrs in the yard he wanted to be barefooted And we were always telling him, boy, you better put shoes on. You're going to get hurt at some point. Well, one day I'm in the house, and I hear this blood-curdling scream coming from outside. And so I immediately run out there, and I look across the way, and I see him sitting on the ground, holding his foot, yelling out in pain, yelling, Daddy, Daddy. And I can see that there's something on his foot. We had about an acre-sized catfish pond on the place that he was walking near, and he had stepped on the carcass of a dead catfish. And the barb of that fin had gone up through his foot, and he had his foot raised up, and there was a catfish stuck to the bottom of it. Random, huh? I mean, who'd ever thought something like that would happen? Now, I could have stood there and called out to him, You should have obeyed. You should have been listening to me. Boy, this is what you get for not listening to your father. I could have shamed him. But my immediate reaction was to go out and run straight to him. Because I knew that he was in no condition to run to me. He was in too much pain to be able to do that. And so I had to go to him. God could have scolded Elijah for listening to this pagan woman instead of listening to him, but he didn't do that. Again at verse 5. Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Elijah was in no condition to come to God at this point, and so God went to him by sending an angel. There's some of you that can completely relate to this position that Elijah was in right here. Sometimes we get in such a funk that we can't seem to move. 
One of the things that we hate hearing anybody say is, come on, man, just get over it. We think, well, if I could get over it, I would. But sometimes we get in a place where we are so depressed and so hurt, we just can't move. We know we need to run to God, but God, I can't. I cannot get out of this pit. And a good father sees when his child is in that position, and so he goes to you. When you can't go to God, God's going to come to you. Notice that first the angel touches Elijah. Never underestimate the power of a touch. Feeling ashamed and defeated, Elijah thought that what he needed the most was solitude. He wanted to just sleep it away, which is what most depressed people usually do. But what Elijah really needed was a touch. And we really shouldn't be surprised that God responded this way. I mean, this is the God who spoke all things into existence. But he formed man with his own hands. He touched him. This is a God who became flesh and dwelt among us and touched lepers and unclean women, which were considered absolutely untouchable during that time. He is the God of many things, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that he is also the God of a gentle touch. And notice that the angel didn't crawl up under the tree with Elijah and join his pity party. Instead, he gives Elijah a command from God, get up and eat. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't given as an option for him to win whenever he got around to feeling like doing it. It was a command, a summons. And I'm telling you right now, there is nothing more precious to a son or a daughter than a command from a loving father. Because inherent in every command is a promise. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that an orphan will always see a promise as a command. But a son, a daughter, who understands who they are, will always see a command as a promise. He commands Elijah to get up and eat. And so if he wants him to eat, it's because he wants him to be nourished. And if he wants him to be nourished, it means that he's got something for him to do. Get up and eat. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, if if I was in a pit of depression and an angel just suddenly appeared to me and this miraculous food just all of a sudden appeared, I think that would be enough inspiration to get me out of my depression too. But I don't see any angels around me. Well, keep in mind, we're in the Old Testament here. And everything that we read about in the Old Testament wasn't about those things themselves. They were pointing to and ultimately about something better. Now that Jesus has came and has done what he came to do, you've got something better available to you than what Elijah had here. Out of all that the angel could have given Elijah to eat, he gives him bread. I believe that this is significant. Some of you are already probably thinking in that direction. Look up on the screen at John 6, starting in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven And gives life to the world. Then in Matthew 26, 26, he 
He explains it even further. And he says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing, he broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Before he even said, I am the bread of life. And so the story of Elijah isn't just about God sending an angel to provide for him food for his physical nourishment. It's about God sending his Holy Spirit to provide for you the spiritual nourishment that you need for a weary, wounded, and broken soul. Are you weak? Get up and eat. Are you depressed? Get up and eat. Are you alone in the wilderness of shame? Get up and eat. Feast upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Fill your mind and your soul with the good news of what he has done and who he has made you. Listen to the words of affirmation that are being declared over you by the Father. Feed upon his word. Eat the bread of life. Back to the story. Verse 6 and 7. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Too great for you, but not too great for God. I'm sure you've heard the saying that some people will say, There is nothing that God will give you that, is, that you can't handle. God will not lead you into anything that you can't handle. But I'm telling you right now, that is just flat not true. God will give you plenty that you can't handle. He will lead you into plenty of situations that you can't handle. But he will never give you or lead you into anything that he can't handle. The pressures of life may be too much for you, but they're not too much for God. The taunts of Jezebel may be too much for you, but they're not too much for God. Do not try to bear the unbearable. Scripture says that the battle is the Lord's. There is a way for you to win the battle that you are facing right now and the battles that are sure to come. But your victory will be not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What is the good news that suddenly propels Elijah forward from this wilderness of shame? Well, God says to the prophet, who by now thinks that he has done it all, that there's nothing left for him to do, he essentially says, you still have a great journey ahead. Next point. God is more about the journey than he is the destination. Too often we want to focus on a destination, and when we do, we completely miss what God is doing right there on the journey to get there. And we assume that arriving at some particular destination is going to be the answer to all of our problems. We think, if I can just get that job, if I could just get this sickness healed, if I could just get my marriage fixed, then all my problems are going to be solved. But look, we know that God is sovereign. And he controls all things. And if those things have not happened yet, then a good God whose timing is always perfect must have a reason for that. Obviously, there is something more important to him than you arriving at that destination right now. You know, sometimes we wonder why God doesn't just do something that we both want. 
I want it, God wants it, why doesn't he just do it? I mean, for instance, let's just say for the sake of the illustration that we can measure spiritual growth on a scale of 1 to 10. Let's say I'm at a 5, and I want to grow more. I want to know God more. I want my love for him to grow to like an 8. I mean, a 10 would be awesome, but I'll settle for an 8 at this point. Do you think God wants me to advance to an 8? Of course he does. He wants us to grow in our love and affection and our knowledge of him. Well, I want it too. So good grief, why doesn't he just download everything now and get me there? Well, apparently, from God's perspective, the journey to get there is more important to him than actually being there right now. Some of you that have been listening to these messages over the last few weeks on shame, and you've been able to identify some of the shame caused scars on your own heart, and you've been seeing people coming down here and just the joy on their faces as they've been being set free from things that have been holding them back, and you desperately want that for yourself, but for some reason it hasn't happened yet. Why not? How come all these other people can get their hearts healed and be free of shame, but I'm still here being oppressed by it? And you got to be careful with that because Satan would love nothing more than for you to think that it's because there's something wrong with you. There's some flaw in you that's keeping you from being able to be healed like everybody else. But the truth is, you want to be free from it. God wants you to be free from it too. And he has you on a journey right now. He's taking you through a process of removing that. And so my exhortation to you today is to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey he's got you on. He never said the journey was going to be easy. As a matter of fact, he tells Elijah, it's too great for you, but it will be good. Last point. Shame-based people focus on the destination. Grace-filled people enjoy the journey. To say you have a long way to go is to say there is still a lot of life left to live. It's to say the best is yet to come. Or as my, I've told you before, as my grandmother would always say, as she would take your face in both of her hands, no matter what you were going through, she'd look you in the eye and say, it's going to be good. And you knew when she did that it was going to be Elijah had a destiny yet to fulfill. His mantle would be placed on Elisha. His anointing would double. He would ascend to heaven in a whirlwind. He would stand and and shimmer next to Jesus, talking to him and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so the angel told him, get up, Elijah. There's still a wonderful journey ahead. Enjoy your successes and achievements, but don't idolize them. Your victories cannot be your gods, nor the remedy for your pain. Be free from the need to achieve. Don't tie your identity to it. Your prize has never been and will never be dependent on your perfection. The prize is not a pinnacle. It's not a destination. It's not an achievement. The prize is a person. And his name is Jesus. Deion Sanders finally found that relief that he was looking for. 
he won the prize that totally satisfied all his longings and healed the wounds on his heart. And it happened when a loving father went to him in his pain. He didn't send an angel, but he sent his Holy Spirit and appeared to him the sudden revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. And Dion surrendered his life to him and was forever changed. So get up and eat. Feast on the goodness of God that he has provided for you in his son. The journey ahead is greater than you know. Let's pray. Lord, as we were singing earlier, great is thy faithfulness. Lord, it is so great. God, you are so faithful even when we are not. Lord, even when we are incapable of being faith, faithful to you, you remain faithful to us. And so, Lord, I pray that there will be some in this room right here this morning who encounter your faithfulness to them in ways that they never have before. I pray for those that are still trying to chase the rabbit, thinking that a great a, a achievement or, or their perfection is going to be what satisfy the longings of their heart. And God, they will no longer believe that lie, but see you as their all-sufficient Savior. Lord, I pray for those that are in that pit of despair and depression right now. That you as a loving Father would go to them. And touch them. And provide for them what they need the most right now. To continue on the journey that you have for them. Lord, we thank you that you are such a good and loving Father. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Lord, I pray that you would give us an insatiable appetite for your truth. Be obsessed with it. Holy Spirit, would you come now and do the work during the remainder of this time that we have together that you intend to do. Father, let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.